And our Father, we thank you for uh, this great hymn that came out of John Newton's heart about your grace. And, and, and it comes out of our hearts tonight as we pray. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now am found. Was blind, but now I see. Twas grace that taught my heart to fear, and grace my fears relieved. How precious did that grace appear, the hour I first believed. The Lord has promised good to me, his word my hope secures. He will my shield and portion be as long as life endures. Through many dangers, toils, and snares, I have already come. Tis grace hath brought me safe thus far, and grace will lead me home. When we've been there 10,000 years, bright shining as the sun, we've no less days to sing God's praise than when we'd first begun. For your grace, Father, for your mercy, for your compassion on us, we, we are grateful more than we can ever express. You gave us physical life. You gave us physical existence. We didn't ask for that. You gave it to us. Uh, we were blind. We couldn't see the truth about you. Through Christ and through your grace, you opened our eyes. And there are guys here that are in the process of having their eyes opened. There are guys here on a Wednesday night who maybe are sitting here thinking, gosh, what am I doing here? Uh, well, that's because you're working in their hearts and you're working in their lives and you're drawing them to you. And it may not be completely clear yet to them, but we pray that you'll just continue to work and continue to draw them and continue to make it clear. They, they have a sense of being pulled in because that's what's happening. And once we come to Christ... You not only save us from our sin and not only save us from the penalty of sin, but now you give us direction and you give us purpose and you have a plan that you have outlined and it's very, very detailed. And you're up to something in our lives and you're preparing us and you're getting us ready to be used by you and to make a difference in the lives of other people. It's not an easy process, it's a hard process but it's a good process. And at times we get weary of it, and at times we think we can't go on, and at times we'd like to check out. At times we're fighting off depression because uh, we don't see a lot of hope. Those are some of the dangers and snares Newton talked about. But grace gets us, gets us through those. And grace enables us to endure. Uh, we, won't, we won't always be here, but we'll always be with you. 
And there'll be a time when there's no more depression. There'll be a time when there's no more despair. There'll be a time when there's no more broken relationships. Uh, There'll be no more broken bodies. And we look forward to that time. In the interim, grace will sustain us. So as we look at this passage tonight that so strongly emphasizes grace, drive it home to our hearts and to our minds so that it will stabilize us and encourage us. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. We're in Titus once again tonight. Titus chapter 2. And in verse 11 of Titus 2, he immediately starts off with the grace of God. And he's going to define it, and he's going to talk about it, and what it is, and what it does. Some of you uh, guys remember President Eisenhower. As a little boy, he's the first president that I can remember. Uh, Had that grandfather effect, had that grandfather look. Everything was all right because President Eisenhower was in the White House. No surprises, you could count on him. Uh, President Eisenhower made a statement one time that pretty much captured uh, that particular time, the 50s. He said this, Our government makes no sense unless it is founded on a deeply felt religious faith. And I don't care what it is. Now that's an interesting statement. He was a good man. He was a moral man. But uh, he wasn't quite sure why. One more time on that. Our government makes no sense unless it is founded on, deeply, on a deeply felt religious faith, and I don't care what it is. You know, in actuality, I think he did care. If he had a really carefully thought about it. We're having to think about that today because we are threatened by a renegade religious faith that claims to be authentic, but which is in actuality a counterfeit. Uh, I'm talking about radical Islam. Uh, These guys play hardball. These guys believe certain things. And if you're sane and if you're rational and if you have a Christian worldview, you understand that they have a worldview that is uh, prompting them to do what they are doing and um, causing all kinds of havoc. You know, that's a very, very real threat. But there are other kinds of threats that are a lot more subtle and that come under the guise, not of Islam, but under the guise of Christianity. Uh, See, the fact of the matter is, uh, what we believe is important and what we teach is important. Um, Paul is writing (coughs) to Titus, and Titus Uh, had allergy and drainage problems. (laughs) And there wasn't a whole lot he could do about it. But uh, I have some stuff called Zyrtec that I forgot to take. I just thought I'd share that with you out of my personal life because I want to be open and vulnerable. uh... Anyway. Huh? I need to smile, I'm sorry. And I need to stand up straight and walk with confidence. Anyway, um, 
Paul was, uh, Paul was instructing Titus, and in the previous two books, First and Second Timothy, he's instructing uh, uh, Timothy. So he's got these two young guys that he's instructing, and they're both in you know, situations where they're having to handle churches and set in order what remains. Um, so it wasn't an easy situation to be in. Uh, he, he comes on pretty strong with Titus as to what Titus needs to do. And one of the things that Titus needs to do as a young uh, associate of Paul and a young pastor uh, is that uh, he needs to uh, look at uh, down at verse 15 of, of Titus 2. These things speak and exhort and reprove with all authority. Let no one disregard you. When you're younger, sometimes you've got a problem in having people listen to you. I see a lot of young um, uh, pastors, and uh, one of the things that concerns me is that some of these younger guys have bought into this new wave of thinking uh, that they have to make the gospel palatable, that they have to uh, make the gospel relevant. The gospel is relevant. Now, you, you know, we, we don't want to be weird and we don't want to be strange, and there are weird churches and there are strange churches. Uh, maybe you've been in one before. And when you walk into a weird church or a strange church, you don't ever want to go back. So some of these young guys, they don't want to be weird and they don't want to be strange, and that's a, that's a good thing. But one of the dangers is, is that they're so concerned with being winsome and they're so concerned about uh, uh, making a good impression is that they begin to back off on the Scripture. They begin to not emphasize the scripture. They begin to rely on other things. I saw a Christian program where a pastor, a young pastor with a big church, uh, it was mentioned he has about 20,000 a Sunday. Uh, he was being interviewed, and then they were talking about how creative he is. And so they gave a clip of the morning sermon, and he had on the stage, uh, they had, they had, a ramp here and a ramp there. And then on the stage, he was standing and he had a music stand with his Bible. And he had a guy, kind of an evil Knievel guy. This is true. They showed it. I saw it. And uh, the, the guy, you know, does the jump over this guy's head as he's teaching. And it was really neat. <laughs> Thousands came to Christ. And this guy who was interviewing him, I just thought that was really neat. And I couldn't figure out what was so neat about it. Because number, I just didn't get it. I just didn't get it. Um, but 20,000 people would come to hear him. And he does stuff like that every week. I know of another younger pastor who has another big church and has a lot of people coming to hear him. And he did a series for... Uh, at least two or three Sunday mornings on healthy cooking and healthy eating. And they set up a kitchen up front and they went through um, um, how to prepare and cook. And this isn't a church. This isn't a church. And I'm thinking, what is this, the food channel? I mean, I, you know what? We don't need Martha Stewart, we need the Word of God. Well, 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 I'm trying to relate. Why don't you give them the Word of God? The Word of God is, is what is going to change people's hearts and people's lives and people's attitudes and, and, and give them a foundation for living life. Uh, note what Paul says to Timothy 
in uh, chapter 2, verse 11. He says, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men, instructing us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires and to live sensibly, standing up straight, smiling, and walking with courage and confidence in this present age. That's not what it says. Now, that's what some of these guys say. But if it comes down to what these guys say and what Paul says, I'm going with Paul. Why is it that Paul doesn't say this stuff? It's because this other stuff is deficient. This other stuff is uh, worldly. This other stuff is foolishness. It's religious foolishness. Is there a grain of truth in it? Yeah. But if that's all you're getting and if that's all you're saying... Why are we doing it in church? They got guys that do that during the week. They're called motivational speakers. But motivational speaking doesn't change anybody's life. The Word of God changes people's lives. See, it does matter what our faith is, and it does matter which faith we choose. This is the battleground. Uh, Jeff gave me a copy of uh, Chuck Colson's new book called The Faith, and I'm about halfway through it. It's an excellent book on the fundamentals of Christianity and why we hold to what we hold to. There are facts. There's content. It's, it's, it's not... Fe- what, and this is where I got this quote. By the way, what, what, what President Eisenhower said... Our government makes no sense unless it is founded on a deeply felt religious faith. Well, it may be deeply felt, but the reason it's got to be deeply felt, a lot of people have deep feelings about certain things. But when it comes to Christianity, if you have a deeply felt faith, the reason you have a deeply felt faith is that you believe that it's true. That it's true. It's, it's, it's not a feeling religion, although feelings come out of it. It is a truth religion. It is a religion, and you know, we say Christianity is not a religion, it's a relationship, and that's true. But it is a faith, it is a faith that is based on propositional truth and propositional facts. And so as we go through our lives and we go through this journey, we're thinking about what is true. Why are we here tonight? We're here to study the Bible because we believe God has spoken to us in the Bible and he has given us some facts and he has given us some truths and the way I make it through life is that I'm continually thinking and referring to and chewing on these facts and these truths and it helps me get through life and it helps me interpret life and what's going on in my life. Does that make sense? So you got to use your head, you got to use your mind and you got to think. Now, Christianity is based on the grace of God, the amazing grace of God. And when you begin to understand it, you just don't call it grace. It's just hard to refer to it as grace because it's amazing. Now, Paul's going to call it grace, but the more he talks about it, you get this overwhelming sense that this is an amazing grace. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men. Not that all men are saved, but all people groups, all, all, the Lord's not going to come back until all have heard, you see. But 
out of those different groups, people are going to come. It's amazing right now because there is, a, there is a, a revival going on in the Muslim world, in Muslim countries that are closed. But God is supernaturally working, and people are coming to Christ. It's a remarkable thing. And they're becoming recipients of the grace of God. Um, the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men. So the basis of this passage is the grace of God. I want to make, uh, I, I want to make uh, five observations about what it is that grace does in our lives right out of this passage. Uh, you can't make it with grace. You, you can't make it without grace. You can't live without grace. You can't, um, you can't, you can't be victorious with what you're facing without grace. I, I want us to see tonight the, the extensiveness of grace and what it is. Because so often, you know what I think? So often, I had a conversation with a, with a young guy in his 20s not too long ago. He, he had been raised in the church, in a very good church. And, uh, but he told me, he said, he, he told me some things that happened to him in the last couple of years. And he said, you know, for the first time in my life, I, I really have a, a living, dynamic faith with Christ, although I asked him to come into my life when I was a little boy. I said, that's great. And then he started making observations, and he started telling me what was going on in his life. And he said, he said can I run something by you? And I said, yeah. He, he said, do you think in the modern evangelical church that we're real big on justification, but we're real weak on sanctification? I said, that's very astute. What did he mean by that? Well, justification is the fact that when we receive Christ into our lives, that he saves us from our sin, and he redeems us, and he justifies us before God. And judicially, because Christ is our substitute, and our he provides satisfaction for our sins before God. So we're justified. It's the old phrase, just as if I'd never sinned. It's a wonderful concept. But there's another concept called sanctification. And sanctification is, is that he wants me to be set apart. If you, if you have a budget, if you have a, a household budget and you get your check, by the way, when you get your paycheck, do you just cash it on the way home and then just put the cash in and start spending money? You probably don't. No, you know what you do? Uh, you deposit that check and then you sanctify it. That's what you do. So you allot, you know, a certain amount. We call it budgeting. When you budget, you sanctify. When you budget, you set money apart for an intended purpose, don't you? So you set apart a certain amount to give. You set apart a certain amount for your, uh, uh, for your mortgage. You set apart a certain amount for this and for that. Every time you budget, you are sanctifying the money. Now, he, he comes into our lives and he justifies us, but now he wants to sanctify us. He wants to set us apart unto him for a certain purpose. And he's going to outline this. So let me give you five shots on the grace of God. Number one, there is an amazing grace that has appeared. That's verse 11. Uh, the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men. That's the first coming of Christ. And what Christ has done, that's what John Newton's hymn is all about. Amazing grace. How sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. But see, it doesn't stop there. 
Because there's a second thing that the grace of God does. Once we come to know Christ and once we are given eternal life, the grace of Christ, secondly, the grace of God instructs us. The grace of God trains us. That's all under number two. Notice, if you will, verse 12. Uh, The grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men, instructing us, or literally training us for what? Well, this is the sanctification part. He has saved me from my sins. That's verse 11. That's um, justification. Now verse 12 is, he's instructing me. He's teaching me. He's training me. This is sanctification. Now, now watch how it works here. Instructing us or training us, watch this, to do what? To deny ungodliness and worldly desires. And then he puts it in the positive. And to live sensibly, righteously, and godly, watch this, in the present age. So right now, what has he done? He saved me from my sin. But see, it's more than just saying, oh, I'm saved and I'm going to heaven. It's more than that. He wants to make a difference in my life. He wants to make a difference through my life. He wants me now, because Christ is in my life, to say no to things that I used to say yes to. And he wants me to say yes to things that I used to say no to. So there's a change that has occurred in my life. And I am called to be different, and I'm called to be distinct, and I am uh, called to be uh, uh, now not going with the stream. Now I'm going against the stream. When Christ comes into your life, you're going to go against the culture. You used to roll with the culture, but not anymore. He's instructing us. He's he's training us. Uh, What does it mean to be trained? It means to be brought to your senses. Uh, we're, We're infants when we come to know Christ. So now he's going to train us, just like you train up a child. And what's he training us to do? Well, he wants us to become mature men. Remember last week we talked about what the older men are to be like? Well, that doesn't just happen overnight. You don't develop those qualities overnight. You don't jump into a Christian microwave and punch two minutes and have that happen. It's a process. But know what the process entails. Instructing us to deny ungodliness. Now, what's that mean? Flip over to Romans 1 you would. Go left in your Bible. In in Romans 1 verse 16, uh, Paul says this, he says, I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. The gospel is powerful. The gospel is life-changing. That's why when Paul would preach, he didn't have some guy jumping over his head on a motorcycle. And that's why Paul never did anything, a three-week series in Romans on how to eat healthy. He didn't give a rip how you ate. Now, he says, is bodily discipline profitable? Yeah, but it's little profit. In our, in our culture, we think it's huge, right? Everything's the body. Everything's being fed. Everything's being 
Now, you know what? That's just common sense. That's a good thing. You know? That's a good thing. And a lot of us, you know, yeah, we were talking about Huckabee before. Uh, Huckabee lost 100 pounds. Good for him. And in his book, he talks about he was raised a Baptist and Baptist eat. That's what you do. And, we, you know, a lot of that's just what you do. You get together and you eat. And, you know, you're not eating, uh, you didn't buy it at Whole Foods. You bought it at Kentucky Fried. And everything's fried. And now we know that's, you know, so we're, hey, we're learning. Is that important? Yeah, it's important. Is it the most important thing? No. But our culture says it is. But it's not. Hey, you want to use your head and use some common sense. But let's keep it in perspective here. So you don't do a three-week series on how to eat healthy. What does he say? I'm not ashamed of the gospel. It's the power of God unto salvation. The gospel will save your life is what it will do. Verse 17, for in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. It is written, but the righteous man shall live by faith. Now, watch what verse 18 begins to talk about. You know, over in Titus, he says that we deny ungodliness. Well, here's a description of of what ungodliness is. And can I just tell you up front, ungodliness, when he's talking about ungodliness, there are two things involved. The first thing is idolatry, and the second thing is immorality. In a general sense, when he says we're denying godlessness, we're denying idolatry, and we're denying immorality. You take the body. and our, Hey, the Greeks worship the body. We worship the body. Can you imagine how tough it would be to be a woman in this culture? It's got to be hard. Because the women who are held up, well, they're all young, number one. Um... They're all, they're not, they're not slender, they're, they're emaciated. And that's, that's what it's supposed to be like. Now, you know, we don't think about this because we're guys, but can you imagine having to live with that? This is why gals, young gals, you know, struggle with anorexia and bulimia. Because this is, this is what they've got to attain to. We worship the body, we worship youth. Well, look at Romans 1.18, because it describes, this describes our culture. Every time I read Romans 1.18, I think, uh, I mentioned the other day, uh, Tommy uh, Nelson's doing the series on the 60s. Whenever I read this, I think of the 60s. But it's just not the 60s. It's every culture. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. Well, why would the wrath of God be revealed? Well, because they suppress the truth in unrighteousness. The idea here is putting truth in a box and sitting on it so it can't get out. It's not that they don't know truth. They know truth, but they suppress it. Because that, watch 19. Because that which is known about God is evident within them. For God made it evident to them. Every person knows that God exists. You say, well, there are atheists. Yeah, there are. Well, why are they atheists if they know God exists? Because they have suppressed the truth in unrighteousness. They know in their gut he's there. They know he's there. For God made it evident to them. Verse 20. For since, 
Now, here's the second reason they know God's there. Number one is God's written, God's written it on their hearts. Secondly, for since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, his, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen. Clearly. So I was at the doctor's office the other day, and they put me in the hallway, and they said, read that chart. And I said, what chart? That chart over there, okay. So I started reading it. They wanted to know if I could see clearly. The truth about God, for since creation of the world, his invisible attributes, his invisible attributes, because you can't see God, but his invisible attributes, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made, so that they are without excuse. For even though they knew God, and by the way, they did know God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks, but they became futile in their speculation and their foolish heart was darkened. So instead of embracing truth, they suppress truth and they act as though truth is not there and they act as though God is not there. Now this is our age. This is where we are in our culture. Verse 22, professing to be wise, they became fools. I saw Tiki Barber the other day on the Today Show and he was doing a little blip. I was looking for the weather and there's Tiki Barber. And he's interviewing this kid who's being raised by two fathers who are homosexuals. I just caught, you know, 45 seconds of it. And then, you know, they do the little piece. And then they, Tiki's sitting there on the set with the other people. And they're all saying, oh, isn't that neat? Oh, isn't that great? It's an alternative. And I'm sitting there thinking, you know what? That's not neat. I wonder when those two guys, I wonder if they're going to hit on that kid. Now, not every homosexual does that, but many do. But you're not supposed to say that. I don't think it's neat. Because most guys that are homosexuals have been recruited, if if you talk to them. They've been picked off by an older man when they were young. But see, we lost our mind. And you're not supposed to say that. And, well, that's just, it's, it's neat. It's not neat. It's wrong. It's wrong, and it's perverse, and it's ungodly. And if you say it's okay, you're ungodly. But you can't say that. Why can't we say it? Well, you're judging. Yeah. Yeah, but we're not supposed to judge. Where'd you get that? You see how screwed up we are? We're just screwed up. That's why I like reading the Bible. I mean, honestly, don't you love reading the Bible? It just clears everything up. It just cuts through the, um, the stuff. <laughs> and there's a lot of stuff. I love 22. Professing to be wise. Well, isn't that neat? No, it's not neat. Professing to be wise. I was, when I saw that, I thought, I wonder what, if one of those guys had said, I don't think that's neat. I think that's wrong. How long would they have lasted on the Today Show? They're gone. Professing to be wise, they became fools. And, and watch, here, here's the idolatry. An exchange of glory of the incorruptible God for an image in the form of corruptible man and of birds 
and four-footed animals and crawling creatures. You go all over the world, you're going to see idols. You're going to see monkeys. You're going to see cows. You're going to see... We, we worship the creation. We worship the earth. Out where I live, they had a meeting about, you know, they got this natural gas thing going on. And are we going to drill in our area? And are we going to, you know, you know, it's the normal little thing. And a guy emailed me and said, hey, can you come to this? And there's some guys, you know, we, they're going to do a lawsuit. So a bunch of us showed up, you know. And you had three minutes to talk. And everybody's given their two bits. And, and, and I went last, interestingly enough. Did I tell you guys this? I only had three minutes. And, uh, and we had just come off a break because they met and the, the council had to meet and everybody took a break and then they came back. So then it was my turn to speak. And I said, during the break... I met some people I didn't know, and it turns out we're all originally from California. But we've chosen to live in Texas. I said, there's a reason I live in Texas. There are a lot of reasons. One of the reasons I live in Texas and not California is that too many people out there worship the earth. It's not the only reason I don't live in California, but it's a reason. Too many people worship the earth. I said, you know, in our family, we don't worship the earth. We worship God. And we believe that God gave us dominion over the earth. And because we believe the Bible teaches that, I would encourage you to approve this permit because I think we ought to go into the earth and get that gas out of there (laughs) as quick as we can. And that's my theological basis for asking you to approve this. And then I sit down. And... um, most of them were Christians in there, and they applauded. It was just, well, why not throw in some theology here? Do I think you ought to drill and get that gas? Yeah, because God put it in there, and we've got dominion over the earth, and we don't worship the earth. <laughs> okay. And they approved it unanimously. <laughs> and I'm praying I get filthy rich. <laughs> Because I want to walk tall and smile. (laughs) And I want to buy a jet. Okay. (laughs) Anyway. I want a gas-powered natural gas jet is what I want. That's what I want. Uh, You read the rest of Romans and you get the breakdown. Therefore God gave them over in the lust of their hearts to impurity so that their bodies would be dishonored among them. So, for they exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason God gave them over to degrading passions. For their women exchanged the natural function for that which is unnatural. And in the same way also the men abandoned the natural function of the woman and burned in their desire toward one another, men with men committing indecent acts and receiving in their own persons the due penalty of their error. That's a fascinating statement. And just as they did not see fit to acknowledge God. By the way, do you see how it goes, the idolatry and then the immorality? You see the sequence? You see the breakdown that's going on here? 
And just as they did not see fit to acknowledge God any longer, God gave them over to a depraved mind to do those things which are not proper. Right now, right now, having sex with kids is frowned upon, isn't it? Give it 20 years. Give it 20 years, maybe not that long. There's already a thing called NAMBLA, the North American Man-Boy Love Association. They march in the gay pride parades. They try to keep a low profile. But you know how those guys are going to be accepted? By the same way we accepted homosexuality. Same arguments, same methods. It just keeps getting worse and worse and worse. God gave them over to a depraved mind to do those things which are not proper. Being filled with all unrighteousness, wickedness, greed, evil, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, malice. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, arrogant, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, without understanding, untrustworthy, unloving, unmerciful. And although they know the ordinance of God that those who practice such things are worthy of death, they not only do the same, but also give hearty approval to those who practice them. And you know what God says to us? God says, I want you to deny ungodliness in your own life. I do not want you to live like this anymore. Because the grace of God has appeared. And he's changed my heart, and he's forgiven me of my sin. But now I'm a new creature, and he wants me to be different. And he wants me to be distinct. And that power which saved me from sin is available to me to give me victory over sin. Will I always be victorious? No, but I've got the power, and I'm learning to to count on it, and it's going to make a difference in my life. We talked last week about what happens when older men bring godly characteristics into their lives and how it influences for the better everybody who's around them. When a man's serious, when a man is stable, when a man is steady, when he's got his feet on the ground, when he's a sound thinker, it makes a difference, and everybody benefits. When people are like this, things fall apart. Let's go back to Titus. See, this is why he says, I want you. It, it, see, it's through the grace of God that we deny ungodliness. We don't live that way. He's training us to deny ungodliness. Now, every once in a while, we got an aberration. We'll have some guy who's the president of the National Association of Evangelicals get accused of having gay sex in a hotel room in Denver. And it's true. He'll deny it, but then we find out it's true. And then we find out in the last two weeks that his church no longer is in a relationship with him because he refuses to be accountable. Well, that's very interesting. You see? Okay. We're not supposed to live like that. Instructing us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires. Now, watch this. So, so that's what I'm to reject because Christ has come into my life, because of his grace. And, but here's the positive. And we are to live sensibly, righteously, and godly in the present age. Uh, he wants us to reflect Christ. He wants us to be different. He wants us to reflect holiness. Um, there's a movement that, that comes from John Wesley. Uh, if you study church history, there's Wesleyan uh, holiness, uh, the Wesleyan holiness Methodist movement. Their emphasis was, used to be not only does Christ save us, 
But Christ wants us to become holy. Be ye holy as I am holy. And so you, when you study that movement, it trickles down. My, my, uh, my dad's parents were out of that tradition. And what happened was they knew they were supposed to be different. But see, sometimes you can get weird on that because you get legalistic. My grandma would not allow my dad or his brothers and sisters to drink root beer because it contained the word root. That's a joke. <laughs> they couldn't drink root beer. Why? Because she wanted her family to be distinct and different. Now, that's a little weird, and kids rebel against that and say that doesn't make sense. It doesn't make sense. But I'll give them this. At least they understood they were supposed to be different. And we don't seem to see a lot of that anymore. Now, we've got to find a balance. I'm not advocating that you quit drinking Bark's root beer. But what I'm saying is we've got to understand that there are things we're supposed to deny. We used to live this way. We don't live that way anymore. We're to live sensibly. Once again, this word, we've seen this word throughout this chapter. Uh, to live sensibly, it's sound thinking. It, you're a sound thinker with your life under control. You live righteously and godly in the present age. Now watch this. Watch this. See, he's training us to do this in the present age so that we're different and we're distinct. But the third evidence of grace is that grace is present in our lives to enable us to wait for the future age. Right now it's present age, but there's a future age coming. Look at verse 13. Looking for the blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. This isn't all there is. He's coming back one day. Uh, verse 11 is his first appearing. This is his future appearing. This is his second appearing. We're looking for the blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, Christ Jesus. Osteen, his first book, was called Your Best Life Now. That's wrong. Your best life is in heaven. Your best life isn't going to be now. This life can be hard. This life can be disappointing. This life uh, can hurt you. This life can be very, very hard and very, very difficult. And you may not realize all that you'd hope to realize in this life. But you know what? We're looking for the blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Christ Jesus. And it's grace that will enable you to sustain through the hardships. You see? There's an old hymn. This world is not my home. I'm just passing through. Now, the, the grace that he's given us in waiting for the future, that's three. Here's number four. That grace, look at 14. Our great God and Savior Christ Jesus, watch this. Now, here's grace again. Who gave himself for us to redeem us from every lawless deed. Once again, he saved me, but he, he gave me grace. And, and, and he, what did he do? He redeemed me from every loss that he paid for my sin. And then look at this. 
So not only has he redeemed me, but to purify for himself a people for his own possession, zealous for good deeds. You see that word purify? See, that's part of the sanctification. Yeah, I'm forgiven of my sin and all that, but now that I'm a new creature in Christ, he wants to purify me. He wants to make me different. He wants to purify my thoughts. He wants to purify my attitudes. He wants to purify my desires. Mortimer Adler, who was the editor uh, of the Encyclopedia Britannica and also of the great books, Colson points out that he was an intellectual giant in his time, but he came to the point where he accepted the rational conclusion that Christianity was true. But when someone asked him why he had not converted, he said he wasn't prepared to give up all the vices and weaknesses of the flesh. He didn't want to do it. Well, give the guy credit. He understood that Christians were supposed to live in a different way. He didn't want to live in a different way. But as he got older, there was a point he asked Christ to come into his life. Because he realized that's a pretty foolish way to live, you see. Uh, we started by reading Amazing Grace by John Newton. Uh, I've quoted to you from this book before, uh, Jonathan Aitken's book on John Newton. Uh, Newton, Newton uh, the more you understand his life, the more you appreciate him writing that hymn. Uh, John Newton, uh, you got, most of you guys know this, John Newton was a slaver. His, uh, his father was a ship captain. His uh, his mother was a godly woman. Uh, she died when he was young. His father remarried, basically didn't have much to do with him. But his, his father got him involved, got him a job. You know, he loved the sea, and so he starts working on these ships. Well, eventually he becomes a ship captain on these slave ships. And, and Newton was a, uh, he was a hell raiser. He, he, he was such a blasphemer that he made the other sailors nervous. Now, that's, that's something. They were nervous to be around him because of how low he went and how treacherous he was in assailing the name of God. He scared them. He lived a life of sexual debauchery. Um, but at a certain point, Christ came into his life. Now, did he immediately change and experience perfection? No. It was a process. Uh, he was comfortable with slavery for a while. Um, he was getting ready to um, go out on another voyage. And what happened was that just before he was going on this voyage, and Newton had always been in great health, He's a young man in his early 20s. He has a stroke. And there's nothing they can do. And that finished him. He was done going to sea. Uh, now, what's interesting was, he was a believer. He'd come to know the Lord. Prior to the stroke, he'd become a believer. On his previous, after he'd come to know Christ, on his previous voyage... He was, he was so into sexual immorality that you know what he did when, when he left, when they left land? He made a vow that he would just drink water and eat vegetables. Why did he do that? Because he was trying to fight off sexual immorality. He said, what does that have to do with sexual immorality? He was trying to bring his entire body under subjection. 
He was trying to master it. He was trying to control it. So in every area, he was, see, he was, he was attempting to fight sin because he wanted to grow in grace and he wanted to deny ungodliness. So now he comes back and, and, and he viewed himself, he was okay with going back out to be a slave captain because he viewed himself as sort of a jailer, only it was on a ship. These people were in jail and he had the key and he would put them in and he would let them out. That's how he rationalized it. So how did he get out of it? God gives him a stroke. And now he's not able to go to sea. So now he's in trouble because now he's out of work for 10 months and he can't find employment anywhere. There's a whole chapter in here on the providence of God and how he wound up getting a job as, as the key customs agent in the city of Liverpool. For 10 months he was without. He's trying to follow Christ. For nearly 10 months, uh, he writes, Newton was unemployed and he had growing anxieties about money. These anxieties, however, were resolved unexpectedly. After a remarkable series of coincidences, Newton was appointed to an official position that he and Jess called my pro-counselship. It gave him security, status, a comfortable office, and 60 employees under his direction. But these material advantages did not change the direction of his life, which was increasingly dedicated to the Lord. He's growing in grace. He's growing in grace. What's interesting is that one of the ways that people in this position made money is that they were paid kickbacks by the ship owners. And it was very lucrative, and it, could, it, it wound up being uh, half of his yearly income. Well, what happened, what, what happened to him was that he began to be convicted about taking bribes and taking kickbacks. He said, well, he shouldn't have done that in the first place. He's growing in grace. In the, in the 60s and 70s, when the Jesus movement hit, some of you guys remember a group called Love Song. You guys remember Love Song? Any of you guys? No, you don't. Jeff remembers Love Song. Okay. They were a great group. When Love Song came to the Lord, they kept smoking dope for three months because they didn't figure it was any big deal. And then as they grew in grace, they thought, oh, you know what? We're supposed to be controlled by the Holy Spirit, not by marijuana. So they quit doing it. Stuff doesn't automatically, you grow in grace. It's like a kid growing. What happened was, is that, um, what happened was, is that he began to study the writings of John Wesley. And then John Wesley came to Liverpool to preach. And one of the things that John Wesley emphasized was the importance of living and conducting your business in a Christ-honoring way. And that began to convict this guy. Isn't that interesting? And he began to struggle over whether or not he should take this money that every other guy was taking. And it was a great struggle for him. John Wesley's exhortation caused Newton to examine his conscience on the issues of whether or not he was honoring his sworn obligations as surveyor of the tides, they call it. I am led to question my conformity to the oath I took on entering office by which I renounced all taking of fees or gratuities, which, however, according to custom, I have done. He anguished in his diary. In the summer of 1757, John Newton decided he would in the future refuse all supplementary fees and gratuities. Why? Because he was growing in grace. He was denying ungodliness. He wasn't going to live that way anymore. And it caused a great stir among his peers. Do you know why? Because they were all doing it. And it was no big deal. 
but it was a big deal to him. You see, he was becoming a mature man. The grace of God was was living out in his life. The grace of God was living out in his business. The the grace of God was was making a difference in, in, in who he was. And by taking that, by taking that stand, he cut his income in half. Oh, and then what happened was that he, had, he started developing this desire to preach. But nobody had touched him. Nobody wanted him. But he kept having this desire to preach and preach. And he kept working his day job, and he was praying that God, and he started studying, he started teaching himself Greek and Hebrew because he really wanted to know the Word, and he became a self-starter and a self-student. And, but he couldn't preach. And you know, this guy had to wait seven years before he could preach. Oh, and then when he became, was able to preach, this is how God works. This is how God works. He's preaching one day in this little town, and this couple walks in. They're wealthy people in the community. They walk in with their 10-year-old nephew, a kid by the name of William Wilberforce. And this is a rich kid. And here's John Newton, and he relates to him. And then... uh, Hears the gospel and believes the gospel, and then he, 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 you know, goes off with his life and, you know, does well and has all this money and plays cards late at night and gambles and is wasting his life. And then Christ got a hold of him in his early twenties. And William Miller before us, when Christ got a hold of him, he thought I ought to become a preacher. So guess who he went and talked to? John Newton. And Newton said, "Son, you don't need to become a preacher. You need to stay in Parliament." And you need to make some changes. You don't need to be a preacher to be used by God. He's got you in a very strategic position. And so you know what William Wilberforce did under the influence of Newton? He, he had two goals in his life. Number one was to get rid of slavery in the British Empire. And uh, slavery was, was the bastion of the economic system of the British Empire. It took him his whole life to do it, but it happened. You know the second thing that he had a desire to do? was to improve the morals of the nation of England. And I'll tell you what's interesting. If you go to England, you'll still see ministries that give tribute to Wilberforce because he got them started. I remember driving in uh, south of London, and there was a Wilberforce school for orphans. He was involved in over 150 ministries. There are some Christian sociologists. You know, we talk about the Victorian age. A lot of good things came out of the Victorian age. It wasn't perfect. But there was an elevation in the overall civility in England, and it is traced directly to the influence of William Wilberforce, who was influenced by John Newton, who was a slaver, and a guy that was a sexual reprobate. But what happened? The grace of God appeared and saved him, and then began to change him and change his behavior and change his attitude. And so you see why Newton would write a, a hymn like Amazing Grace. How sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I think I told you this in the fall, but it's worth repeating. When they buried uh, John Newton, he wrote on an inscription to put on his gravestone. You know, you know what the inscription is? I am a great sinner. But Jesus is a great Savior. That's amazing grace. 
Let's pray. Lord, we can talk all night about how our culture's going downhill. We, we all see it. We're all saddened by it. But you're always at work. And you've worked in our hearts and in our lives, and you're continuing to work. And you take guys that have wasted their lives and have messed up and uh, have got a lot of regrets, and uh, that's us. And then you turn us around, and then you begin to train us, and you begin to instruct us, and you begin to discipline us when we veer off, not because you're against us, but because you're for us. We get back in the sin, you discipline David said, it was good for me that I was afflicted. Now I keep thy law. You want us to live according to a different standard. We, we, don't, we don't do this, Lord, to, to, to earn salvation. We've received salvation. But the fruit of it comes out of our lives, what you've done in our hearts. There are guys in here that are struggling maybe with uh, some habitual sin as John Newton was, I pray, Lord, that you would give them much grace and much mercy. Encourage their hearts. We're, we're not where we want to be yet, but we're in process. Give us a hunger and give us a desire for righteousness. Seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. We don't always get it right, Lord, but you look for that desire for righteousness. We've had it with how we used to live. We want to be your men living your way. And we leave here and you spread us out all over this metroplex. And we're salt and we're light. And half the time we don't even realize we're making an impact. But people are watching and they can see. Thank you for grace that keeps us going. We're going to go to sleep tonight. When we wake up, it'll be there. And it's even then when we're asleep. You give to your beloved even in their sleep. It's all grace. We can't take a step. We can't take a breath without grace. So we rejoice in it. And we agree it's amazing. And we thank you for it in Jesus' name. Amen.